Hi there, and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfon, and I'm joined remotely, as always, by co-host Joseph Cacharo. Cash, what is going on, man? I was going to ask you the same thing uh, with what's going on with me. Well, I just discovered this this new sport called Calcio Storico. Anyone watch uh, Home Game on Netflix? Have you have you watched this series, Home Game on Netflix? I have not. So they they. Uh, they just like find the most random niche sports in different parts of the world. And episode one, a coworker, Toby Fallow, who, you know, uh, recommended it to me. And it, the first episode was on this thing called Calcio Storico. And it's just like 500 year old game that is only played in Florence. There's only four teams and there's only three games a year, two semifinals and a final. And it's a combination of soccer, rugby, uh, bare knuckle boxing and MMA. <laughs> There's 54 people on a field, 27 on each side. You're only allowed to join a team if you were born in Florence and you have to play for like the district you were born in, no matter where you live now. And uh, basically, yeah, so there's like some kicking, which is, I, I guess, like soccer, but it's more like rugby where you got to advance the ball from one side to the other, like in a football manner. But the way you clear a path isn't with like scrums and stuff. It's literally with everyone else that doesn't have the ball beating the shit out of each other to clear a path. They're like wrestling. They're like break, literally breaking each other's jaws, guys breaking legs and stuff. And they get paid zero dollars. So I thought that was really for the love of the game. Yeah. So in case you want to start a Calcio historical podcast, uh, I'm I'm, I'm game. I mean, I might have to check this out. I was going to ask, like, how can you have a sport that is a combination of like soccer, rugby, and bare knuckle boxing, but you explained it pretty well. Yeah, almost uh, as dangerous as uh, heading to Florida right now. Yeah, for real, or or Chicago for that matter. Oh um, my God. Which which maybe is where we can start today's episode. I mean, Chicago obviously, you're not seeing the same kind of explosion in case counts in in Chicago or the surrounding area in Illinois as you are in Orlando and in Florida, but. ESPN's Jackie McMullen reported that the NBA is planning on creating a secondary bubble for the eight teams who aren't going to Orlando in order for them to essentially have a training camp, play some exhibitions against each other, and generally just stay in game shape as opposed to being on the shelf for you know what would ultimately be about nine months, assuming that, that, that next season does start in December. I mean, we we talk about that too because I think I'm not wholly convinced that next season is going to go off without a hitch either. And I think, in a lot of ways, I don't know if it's part of the goal, but I certainly think that in some ways there's an element of these, you know, potentially now two bubbles serving as a sort of test case to see what is or isn't going to be feasible next year because it, it certainly seems like we're going to be living with this virus for a while. And maybe it'll be a little calmer come December than it is right now, but it, it, we're not looking at living in a virus-free world, I don't think, come December. So um, I guess we'll start to see what does and doesn't work. But what, what do you think of this Chicago bubble idea for the eight eliminated teams? Yeah, I think on the surface, it sounds pretty ridiculous and uh, half-baked and completely unnecessary. Uh, look, I, I won't lie. I don't know about Illinois numbers that we've been so focused on Florida for the most part, just cause a, that's where the news, you know, has been, but also as NBA writers and podcasters, that's what we're focusing on. Cause that's where the NBA is going to be played. So I have no, maybe Illinois is handling it. Well, I don't know, but 
you know, I don't, I don't think anywhere in the States is handling it perfectly right now. And I don't think there should be any unnecessary gatherings of this type. And you can make the argument, the, the regular season, these 22 teams aren't necessary. And, you know, I understand that, but especially unnecessary are these eight trash teams going nowhere, getting together in this mini bubble. That is just, I don't think will accomplish anything. And, and, you know, you mentioned the Jackie McMullen piece. She's the one who broke this. I believe it was in her piece where she said Dwayne Casey, head coach of the Pistons, had already polled, like done an informal poll of the eight coaches, and the majority of them don't want this. They'd prefer to just hold mini camps in each of their respective home markets. And something like that, to me, makes a lot more sense. Each of those eight teams can kind of figure out uh, their own way with maybe some rules and regulations put forward by the NBA and agreed upon with the NBPA, but that's a lot easier to do, right? You have one team in their home market. I don't know, maybe it's a 10-day mini camp and they have certain guidelines that while those 10 days are going on, they can only be going to the facility and and home, you know, other than emergency type things. So I'd be fine with that because I do understand, you know, that these guys are professional basketballs. They play in the NBA and like from the players, management, coaches like Casey, they are looking at it. You mentioned it would be essentially a nine-month layoff. And I think I had brought this up on one of our previous episodes, but you know, you think about the fact that usually the difference between a team that goes deep in the playoffs and a team that misses the playoffs in terms of how long their layoff is, it's the difference between four months and uh, and two months, right? It's a two month difference. In this case, if you're one of these eight teams and you do nothing, that's a nine month layoff, as opposed to some teams who are literally only going to be off for like five weeks between yeah. the end of the playoffs and camp. And I don't know, maybe you can make the argument the other way that those teams will actually be at the disadvantage. I don't know, but but I do know that nine months is an insanely long time for a professional athlete to go without really working on their craft. And so I understand why they want to get to work. I do not understand why they want to get all eight teams together in one bubble in Chicago. Just do some sort of mini camp in your home markets and be done with it. Like It's just taking on such unnecessary risk. I don't know. I guess maybe I'm of two minds about that because I, I think if these teams are going to be holding training camps in their own markets, and obviously we've seen these players want to play, They have been playing. We can't reasonably expect that they're just going to be sitting at home for nine months. So they're going to be out there in gyms, getting in runs, like in some form or fashion, they're going to be at risk anyway. So in some way, I feel like maybe this is the NBA actually trying to mitigate the risk and trying to say like, look, you know, we haven't forgotten about you and we are going to use some of our considerable resources to put you in a similar environment that we're putting these other 22 teams in. And whether that means, you know, putting in the same sort of testing guidelines where the players are being tested every day, uh, where they're creating a similar bubble type environment where people from the outside aren't coming in. I don't know. I mean, it's a question, I guess, of whether the NBA wants to swallow that expenditure, whether those eight teams want to all travel to a single site out of market and undergo, you know, the same physical and social alienation that the players who are going into the Orlando bubble are going to be doing, you know, potentially be separated from their families. And I don't know, like maybe, maybe the restrictions won't be as tight as they are in Orlando because the league doesn't have as much of a vested interest in like the Chicago bubble being seen through to its conclusion as they do the Orlando bubble, which is like, you know, a championship is on the line, but in a certain sense, I I understand it. And, and at the same time, like, 
you know, we're talking about the the plan is for next season to start in December. At a certain point, whether it's a month before that, like, you know, sometime in early November, like these teams are going to have to congregate and have some form of a training camp before next season starts. Like they're going to have to do it eventually. Like, and we don't have any guarantees that the picture is going to look any rosier in November than it looks now. So if you can't create a situation now where these teams can congregate and work out and stay in shape, then I don't know that you're necessarily ever going to feel comfortable doing it. And at that point, you're saying the NBA going on as it was is completely untenable. And maybe that's true, but obviously the NBA is not at a point where it's willing to say that yet. Yeah, well, I think another interesting thing is um, there's been a lot of people that have looked at it as like, well, if they they should just forget this season and put all their energy and focus into like planning next season. That's supposed to start in December. But I think what some of those people aren't like thinking enough about, as you just discussed, is there, this is not going to be easier in December. You know what I mean? When the NBA is planning to start again. So the idea now, look, if you're of the mind that they should cancel it and literally just not do anything until it's safer, that's fine. That's a completely understandable position, but just for the people that are kind of looking at it, like just forget this season and go into plan mode for next season. Well, the problem with that is that if they actually use the same criteria for shutting this season down, then they might not be playing till next summer for all we know. And, and so I also like plant planning mode. Isn't a thing right now. Exactly. It's, it's impossible to plan for anything. Just think about like how fast everything has changed. I mean, even this explosion in Florida, it's really only been in like the last three or four weeks that that's been happening. And it, it so, is an explosion, by the way. It was like 10,000 new cases yesterday. Yeah, which is, I think, a record for any state in a single day. Yeah. And yeah, again, I mean, it just, it changes that quickly. So for the NBA to have an idea of what's going to be happening next month, let alone in November, is just completely impossible to predict. And I think that's where we're going to get into, like, on the one hand, I think, you said it, it's maybe a little bit ridiculous to to put all of these resources into creating a secondary bubble for these teams that are eliminated and don't have anything to play for. But on the other hand, I mean, they're still employees of the NBA. Uh, the NBA still has a responsibility to try and keep them safe if they're working out or playing on company time. Yeah, no, I, I understand that. I mean, I guess it's it's a matter of perception. I mean, are they safer being in like a controlled environment where the NBA has like a measure of oversight? Obviously, they have the resources to acquire as many tests as they feel like is necessary. And the optics of doing that, I guess, are a different story. And they're, they're already hoarding 15,000 tests for this Orlando bubble, like to hoard thousands more tests for the Chicago bubble. Maybe it's going to be a bad look. But there, there's this idea of having a, a controlled environment, but having more people in that bubble, teams playing against each other, practicing together, as opposed to maybe doing individual workouts uh, or just practicing as a team, rather than creating the possibility for like, if there is an outbreak, suddenly maybe you have a super spreader event because of how many people are in that one place. And, and it's those are the same kind of issues that we're talking about when we talk about the Orlando bubble. So... I don't think there's an easy answer there necessarily. Yeah, no, there's no easy answer and, and there's no easy fix. 
should things derail a little bit. And I mean, really, there's nothing we can do other than hope it doesn't. <laughs> exactly. So we can move on, I guess, to, to talking about Orlando and, and where that's at right now. The NBA did another round of testing, found nine additional cases of COVID. Uh, the Clippers shut down their practice facility due to a positive case. The Nuggets shut down their practice facility due to two positive cases, um, which had nothing to do with Nikola Jokic's positive case because he's been in Serbia mingling with known clown Novak Djokovic, possibly contracting the virus from him. Have they actually been hanging out together? They they had spent some time together like the week before, I think. Wow, I didn't, I didn't realize that. I knew Djokovic um, was a clown. I, I wasn't aware that... I, I think they were hanging out while while Djokovic was there with the Adria tour, which for anyone who hasn't been <laughs> been paying attention blew up in spectacular fashion. Yeah. Um so the Nuggets shut down their practice facility, the Nets shut down their practice facility. Uh the Nets are in dire straits right now because Kyrie and KD were already out. Wilson Chandler opted out for family reasons. And now DeAndre Jordan and Spencer Dinwiddie both have COVID. Dinwiddie is symptomatic, um, as he mentioned on Twitter. Uh, he, he's been one of the rare NBA players, I think, that's actually been dealing with symptoms. So he's unsure if he's going to go to Orlando. Uh, DJ has already said he's not going to go. So that leaves the Nets with a pretty threadbare roster, to say the least. Uh, they signed uh, Justin Anderson, who had a nice season in the G League and played three games for them this season, to maybe sop up some of the minutes that Wilson Chandler is going to vacate at the three slash four. But apart from that, I mean, if Dinwiddie doesn't go, that leaves Karis Levert as basically their only ball handler, their only creator. And I don't play fantasy basketball. I've never played fantasy basketball. But if NBA fantasy sports are going to be continuing uh, in Orlando, which I don't know if they are or aren't, Oh, they'll be they'll they'll be continuing because there'll there'll be money to be made from it, right? Let's be so I feel like Karis Levert would be a good player to pick up in fantasy because yeah. he might literally average thirty five points a game. I don't know if it'll be pretty; like he might not do it efficiently, but I feel like his volume is going to be off the charts because who else on that team, if Dinwiddie is not there, is even going to be able to create any offense? Don't you lose points for missed shots, though? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do. You you lose. I mean, it's not the same. Like uh, like a bucket because it's two points is worth more than a missed shot is worth negatively. But but yeah, you do lose something. It's usually like half a point or something for like a missed shot. But no, I think I think yeah, Lavert. If anyone is going to will the Nets to any kind of positive result in Orlando, it's going to be Karis Lavert because he's literally the only guy on their team who has NBA competent ball handling skills. Um, like Jared Allen, you know. I think we both like Jared Allen, but he's not he's not doing much on the offensive end for them other than like setting some screens and rolling into the bucket. So yeah, yeah the Nets are trolling. I mean, look, we joked off air. I sent you a text. I don't know if it was earlier this week or last week. Everything's blending together, but that the Nets are going 0-10 in Orlando. And that was before. That was before, yeah, yeah, before Jordan and, and Dinwiddie uh, said that they had coronavirus. So. I mean, you, you want to talk about a guy to pick up in fantasy. Bradley Beal. Now, the interesting thing is, since I was all on that train, I think Beal has now come out and said he didn't. Beal say he is undecided on playing in Orlando. He did, yeah. Which obviously, you know, is a serious matter if he doesn't want to play. 
Um, but if he does play, you know, forget the fantasy angle, but just if you're looking for a guy that might be really fun to watch on a team that's otherwise not great, uh, it'd be Beal because especially now that the Nets seem so vulnerable, like, look, I think the Magic are in seventh right now. Yeah, the Magic are in seventh. The Nets... The Nets think, are in seventh. They're a half oh, game up on the right, Magic. Yeah. But, and then the, the Magic, I believe, are five and a half up on Washington. So Brooklyn's six up on Washington. If we envision that Orlando should be able to t- keep one of those two spots, essentially the Wizards will need to make up two games on the Nets in the eight game seeding games just to be able to get into a play in. Yeah, I think if Beal plays, you know, I, I think the Wizards are bad and I think the Nets are better than them. However, given the rosters they're taking to Orlando, I don't think the Nets are better than any of the other 21 teams, right? Like you just look at the ragtag roster they're bringing, it's not good. And especially against teams that have something to play for, like that, that roster is going to be demolished a lot. And, you know, I, like I was looking at the Magic schedule, the Net schedule, and the Wizards schedule. All three have pretty tough schedules. In ge- See, here's the thing. In general, almost every team... There aren't team, really any easy schedules. Right, because these are all the teams that were either in the playoffs or in the mix. I think uh, the Pelicans are the only team out of the 22 whose strength of schedule on average is under 500. So every team is essentially playing a winning schedule. And for teams like Orlando, Brooklyn, and Washington, that's a problem because they're trash. And so I went through every team schedule and even trying to be positive. I think I came up with like maybe one of the Nets, sorry, one of the Magic or Wizards could go three and five, maybe. But I'm fully expecting that all three of those teams will probably go two and six, one and seven, or maybe 0 and eight. And if one of them is going 0 and 8, it's going to be the Nets. And if they go 0 and 8, then the Wizards literally will only need to go 2 and 6 to force a play in. Which if the I, Nets go if the Nets go 0 and 8, aren't they playing the Wizards? They're playing the Wizards at least once, maybe twice. No, not twice. They're playing um or they're playing Orlando the twice. And they're playing the Wizards once. So Brooklyn Washington play and that's why actually last Friday night I did a piece on like the eight games to watch in the restart. And I put Brooklyn, Washington in there, even though both teams are so bad, because I said like a playoff race as bad as it is, is still a playoff race. And this is literally like the one game that Washington might feel like they're in a race. It's still early enough in the schedule where they'll still feel like they're in it. The Nets probably will lose their first game. Like it. Yeah. I mean, they just, they have nothing. Like they've got Levert, Allen and Joe Harris. And I guess Torian Prince, Torian Prince had a really rough season. So yeah. And and honestly, DeAndre Jordan, like, we kind of slagged him a bit at the beginning of the season uh, because we felt he was sort of undeservedly starting over Jared Allen. And he honestly had a rough start to the year. But honestly, in the second half, he was quite good. And the fact is, without him, the Nets literally don't have a backup center. Like I wrote in, in the piece that we wrote, I mentioned Nicholas Claxton, who's a rookie big man who showed some bounce in his in his first season, but also played like less than 200 minutes. And then a fan helpfully reminded me that he has had shoulder surgery and so isn't going to be playing in the bubble either. Even him. Uh, so I'm, I'm a little surprised, actually, that the Nets didn't go out and try and sign a big man during the signing window. I think the only the additions they made were Tyler Johnson and Justin Anderson. I don't think either of those guys are moving the needle for them. I could totally see them going going zero and eight okay. in the seeding games, and then and I- then losing both play in games to Washington. 
What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. Okay, I've got the schedule. So, they play Orlando twice. Once at the beginning and once towards the end. Even if you're generous and you say they'll split those games because both teams are bad and they play twice. Okay, so say say they split the two games with Orlando. I'm saying they lose to Washington. That's one and two. They're going to lose to Milwaukee, one and three. They're going to lose to Boston, one and four. Sacramento, I don't know. I mean, by that point, Sacramento could be out of it, but I still think Sacramento has enough talent that even if they're not trying, they should be able to beat this Brooklyn team. One and five. Clippers, one and six. And then they play Portland in the last game. And the Blazers will probably be in the mix to try to get into the play. And like, so basically, I'm thinking they go one and seven. Unless Portland is out of it by that last game and sits everyone and maybe they go two and six. But I'm putting the Nets over under at one and a half. And so are you are you taking the, the over on the Wizards at two and a half then? <laughs> uh, see, here's the... Okay, so the Wizards play the Suns. We said they'd beat the Nets. They play the Pacers, the Sixers, the Pelicans, the Thunder, the Bucks, and the Celtics. No, like the Wizards aren't winning more than two games. Yeah, so... so there you go. So they, so they need the, the Nets to go winless in order to yeah. force to play them. Anyway, I mean, if Beal does decide to go, then I think they have a pretty decent shot of getting to within four games and then winning those two straight play-in games, just given how skeletal the Nets roster currently is. I also like how we're talking about this as if it's going to happen. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> do, do any of those moves, um, like you mentioned the move Brooklyn didn't make, they didn't pick up a big man. Did any of the moves that went down before that July 1st roster setting deadline, I don't know, intrigue you at all. And I will add too, for anyone listening, there's been a lot of confusion because there's so many soft target dates. Like there was the June 24th deadline for players to decide to like to play or not. Right. There's the July 1st quote unquote deadline to sign guys, but really players can still opt out of playing. Uh, teams can still sign players to replace anyone that opts out or replace anyone that ends up contracting the virus and not playing. The only real stipulation I can find is that if the if a team needs to replace a player after the seeding games, like the play-in or the playoffs, they're limited to players with three years of experience or less. But all these deadlines that have really come up that we've written about, like the moves that have happened before them, they've all been soft deadlines. Like transactions can still happen. Having said that, do any of the moves that happened so far interest you? I like Joe Noah on the Clippers, and this wasn't really a surprise. Like, they signed him to a 10-day, like, 48 hours before the league was shut down. And I thought it was a good match at the time. I still think that. Uh, he didn't step on the floor for them before the season got suspended. And, and the other thing, I guess, is, like, he hasn't set foot on an NBA court in 15 months. Yeah. And he's 35 years old. So maybe it won't wind up mattering at all, but... I think if he can give the Clippers the kind of production that he gave the Grizzlies last time he played in the league, 
That's a pretty impactful pickup, man, because he he played well for Memphis. Um, he looked physically so much better than he had at the tail end of his Knicks tenure when he was just destroyed by injuries and wound up essentially getting exiled by the team and spending a year out of the league before he latched on with Memphis. Um, but he was moving way better. He still like has incredible basketball feel and IQ. He's a great passer who can make plays from the elbow. And he's still a really solid defender. And that that team's like Memphis's defense was like eight points per hundred possessions better with him on the floor. And and the Clippers, you know, the kind of one soft spot they've had all season is that interior defense. And as fond as I am of Zubac, I think he's an underrated defender uh, who, you know, in a drop scheme can be really effective. He's a solid rim protector. His, his defensive field goal percentage at the rim this year was like top three in the NBA. But I don't think Doc Rivers trusts him. He hasn't played big minutes. He's probably never going to play big minutes. And if you're talking about Montrez Harrell, uh, as, as much of an energizer as he is and as effective as he can be at the offensive end as a center, he's quite undersized to be a center at the defensive end. And so in matchup specific terms, like, you know, the Clippers aren't going to be relying on, on Joe Kim Noah to play big minutes for them, but situationally, uh, if it's a game, say like the Lakers or the Nuggets, and they just need like 10, 12, 15 minutes of a huge body to kind of go and make things a little bit more difficult for someone like a Jokic or an Anthony Davis, then I think Noah's about as good as they could have done. I agree. And I listen, I'm I'm concerned about the Lakers. Like I think I don't think they're in trouble by any means. I still think they're a great team with two great players that could win the championship. I picked them to win the championship, but I will say, like you I agree with everything you just said about Noah. I think um, people can laugh at it if they want, given how long he's been out of the league. At worst, I think the Clippers got a little better. You know, if anything, a little deeper, and, and that can't hurt. You mentioned Noah not being in the league 15 months. That's five months more recent than J.R. Smith was last in the league. It's been 20 months. By the time the, the Lakers step foot on the court, it's going to be 20 months since J.R. Smith's been in the league. You mentioned Joakim Noah actually providing some positive value the last time we saw him 15 months ago. Last time we saw JR 20 months ago, he was a 31% three-point shooter. And that's pretty much his only positive value skill left. And he wasn't even doing that well. We talked about JR last week. I won't go too much further down that rabbit hole. But I will say, since we spoke about JR, news has now come out that Dwight Howard is still undecided about playing or not. And Dwight Howard, you know, we I don't think we ripped him to the same degree we ripped the, the DeAndre Jordan signing. But... I don't think any of us saw the value Dwight Howard was going to bring to the Lakers this season. Like he was in his role, he was great. And the Lakers were really good in two big lineups with Davis and Howard on the court. Now they can still do that with Davis and McGee. Um, I I still think they'll be solid defensively. They have enough defensive talent there. But when you're talking about like the championship level of contenders, especially between two teams that, I think are so evenly matched between the Lakers and the Clippers. And you take away an Avery Bradley, a starter, a three and D guy that was playing about 24 minutes a game. That was very important to their um, perimeter defense with Danny green. And you potentially take away Dwight Howard, the adverse effect that has on your depth, the adverse effect that has on your defense, given the fact that the Clippers and bucks haven't gotten worse. If anything, the Clippers, as we just mentioned, might've gotten a little better. Like I think that's reason to be concerned in a race that is very close among these three 
title contenders. And and even for me who picked the Lakers to win, I don't know, maybe it seems silly that I would pick them to win and then they lose Avery Bradley and maybe Dwight Howard. And I'd say, I don't know, but that's how thin I think the the margin for error is at that top tier. And sorry, JR, like signing J.R. Smith doesn't do anything to address that for me. It's like, yeah, you get another warm body that can play minutes. You also get a guy who is a shit ton worse than Avery Bradley on the defensive end. Who hasn't been? Who yes was one of the best okay, shooters. But, of his- but like also, they're not replacing Avery Bradley with J.R. Smith, right? Like they're replacing Avery Bradley's minutes primarily with like KCP and Alex Caruso minutes, and J.R. Smith will be again situationally deployed. And if he has a couple of stints where he looks awful, he will probably just sit for the rest of the season. I'm not convinced about that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I mean. Like I'd be much more worried, honestly, about the Dwight Howard loss yeah. because I don't think they have any good ways to replace what he was giving them. And I yeah, know, JaVale like, McGee can't do can't do what Dwight was like. JaVale McGee had a solid enough season, but I don't think yeah. he gives them what Dwight Howard gave them, especially in those two well, big lineups. Yeah, and I think like McGee can more or less give them, I think, what Dwight was giving them in limited minutes. But like the eighteen minutes a game that you're losing in Dwight Howard, like. Some of those you can sort of reallocate and make just like Davis at center minutes. Um, and maybe you give a few of those minutes to McGee, but like McGee hasn't played, like he's not used to playing 20 plus minutes a game. Pretty sure there have literally been articles written about the fact, like McGee's numbers once he crosses the 15 or the 18 minute. Wasn't it McGee that everyone, he had like severe asthma or something? Do you remember what I'm talking about? I think it was McGee. Vaguely. Someone wrote something about, uh, his effectiveness dropping after like the 18 minute mark because of his conditioning. Uh, yeah, I think that, I think you're right. Um, anyway, I, I just, as far as like your, your point about not necessarily believing anymore that the Lakers can win the title. Like, no, I I, I still I, believe I honestly, they can. I, I just mean, like I'm, I'm kind of just throwing all my predictions out the window. I don't think any of that, not that, None of it matters. Like, obviously, I still believe that the Bucks are the best team in the East. I still believe the Clippers are the best team in the West. And, like, if you were asking me, okay, if this season gets played out to its conclusion, I would still probably say that it winds up Bucks clippers in the finals. But, like, I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't know who's going to get sick or who's going to get injured or who's going to go or who isn't going to go. It's just, it feels senseless, honestly, to, to, to like try and make any predictions at this point in time. Like, it, it's so, everything is so up in the air. I mean, like, let's see if they can get everybody to Florida healthy. All right, answer me this, though. Other, like, Brooklyn doesn't count because they were never a contender. Among, like, not even the three contenders, like, out of the top eight to 10 teams in the league, has any team downgraded as much over the last couple of weeks than the Lakers? And, and I think, the answer is no, and I think that is a problem. Like, that's a problem again when when you're a legit title contender and in a tier with two teams that are also very excellent and are very evenly matched. I would say the Jazz. I mean, them, them losing Bojan is is a way bigger loss than. I guess it, maybe you can say it doesn't matter as much because they weren't going to win a championship anyway. Right. But that's a team where they certainly could have won a playoff round. And now yeah, I don't think yeah. like, I think apart from whichever team ends up in the eight seed, like the most likely team to get bounced in round one. Yeah. The only, the only other prediction I will make is that if this thing does go off without a hitch somehow, and, and 
we're podcasting about the playoffs a couple months from now, there's going to be at least one episode where we're wondering why Alex Caruso didn't get more minutes over J.R. Smith. <laughs> when the when the clutch tandem of J.R. Smith and KCP is both logging 30 plus minutes in a game in a playoff game the Lakers lose and Caruso plays like 17. Listen, I know you've been really hard on KCP this KCP season. KCP listen, KCP had a really strong season after I ripped the shit out of him in, in like one month in. Yeah. Shout out to the score YouTube channel, by the way. Cash has been doing absolute work churning out scripts for that channel. And if you want to scroll back a few months, you can find his video on KCP. Essentially just just diving into why the Lakers were so attached to him and why he continued to get minutes despite having what was a really tough start to the season. But he finished pretty strong. I think he's a solid defender at the point of attack, and he shot the ball really well this season. So I don't think they're losing too much by shifting a bunch of Avery Bradley minutes to KCP. And I, I would agree that if J.R. Smith is getting minutes over Alex Caruso, it's going to be a bit of a crisis. But I guess we'll just have to wait and see. I guess a minor uh, crisis in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, uh, I don't know that, that we have a whole lot more than that for this week. It, it feels like it's just a bit of a holding pattern right now. And I don't feel the need to repeat myself and I'm sure you feel the same and I'm sure our listeners are tired of hearing us just comb through all the different reasons that this thing is a bit of a leaking ship like what are your feelings about this on a on a personal level like are you excited about this because I think maybe it's just because there's so much else going on in the world um and there's just such a a kind of interminable churn of depressing news every day that I haven't really gotten excited about it yet. And maybe that'll change later in the month when everybody's in Florida and the games are about to start. But for now, I don't know. It just still feels so hypothetical to me. Uh, what about you? Are you, are you excited about this? Are you nervous about it? I mean, a little bit of both. Look, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I am. If, if, if we get to a point where games are played and it's meaningful games in the playoffs, I will be excited and I'll be excited to cover them and write about them and everything. But for now it's at best cautious optimism because, you know, as we've spoken about, like I, I do believe that if they start, they'll find a way to finish. Like they'll, I don't know how, but they'll find a way, but I'm still not convinced they will start just based on everything that's going on, especially in Florida. So for me, it's cautious optimism. And, you know, also like trying to be sensible about everything. Like I'm, well aware how low on the totem pole professional sports are right now, given not just like the health crisis going on in North America and in the world, but the very real and very important push for social justice. And like, I'm again, I'm well aware how low um, on the totem pole pro sports and the NBA are. I also, again, I, I, I won't lie and, and say I'm not excited if it does come back. I'm going to obviously be watching a, it's our job. But even if it like, if it wasn't our job, I'd still watch. I don't, you know, I'm not going to sit here and pretend I would go on some sort of strike and refuse to watch. Like I, I would watch. And you know, I think you wrote a really great piece this week, trying to. I mean, you can speak to it better than I can. But you know, that it, it's it's a very delicate balance right now between being excited and also being cautiously optimistic and also trying to be cognizant of everything going on in the world. And and so yeah, I know that's a very long winded way to answer your question without me really committing to one thing but 
but that's how I feel. Like I hope I hope we can get to a point where we're watching and covering the NBA about a month from now. I hope over the next month the COVID crisis is a little more under control, despite the fact it doesn't seem that's going to be the case. I hope more has been done uh, with the fight for social justice over the next month. And on that note, shout out to Maya Moore. Like we have never shouted out anyone before because you want to look at, forget a pro athlete. You want to look at a human making a difference. This woman, one of the greatest women's basketball players ever walking away, essentially still in her prime, even though she had accomplished so much, she was still very much in her prime and on her way to maybe establishing herself as the GOAT. And she walked away from that because she committed to the case of a friend who she had met once uh, uh, on a prison visit, Jonathan Irons, um, who was wrongly convicted of a crime and sentenced to 50 years in jail. And I believe he ended up serving 20 plus. Anyway, he was released this week because of Maya's work and her family's work. So just shout out to her. Like you, there better be humanitarian awards named after her. And like this story better be told for generations because what she did is so amazing. So again, like it, I'm hoping there are more stories like that. The fact that he was, if you read up on the case, the fact that he was in prison at all is infuriating, but I hope more people make a difference like Maya Moore did. I hope if the NBA returns, the league and the players find a way to somehow make a difference while playing. Like I hope for all that. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I am still very much curious about what that kind of push for social justice while they're inside the bubble in Orlando is going to look like. And I think if it's just empty symbolism, that will be a big disappointment. And I guess, you know, on one hand, okay, good on the league if they're going to paint Black Lives Matter inside the sidelines on the course that they play on. You know, like there's, there's an element of visibility, I suppose, just blasting that message out there. But I think actionability is the important thing. And to, and to that point, um, I agree with everything you said about Maya Moore. I think it's worth noting also that LeBron's more than a vote initiative. Part of that has been pushing NBA teams to use their arenas as uh, voting centers. Um, and I think three teams have already agreed to do so. One in Atlanta, one in Detroit, and I'm drawing a blank on the third one right now. Yeah, Those two uh, I know about for sure. But a big element of, of voter suppression is just the government's essentially shutting down polling places uh, in underserved communities and making it more difficult for, in a lot of cases, minorities to vote. So it, just increasing that level of accessibility is, is a really important first step. So you hope to see more stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, for me, I want to be clear, like I miss the NBA terribly. And I, like I imagine everybody listening to this, miss life the way that it was before this virus came into our lives and blew everything up. But my missing of basketball and the NBA in a lot of ways right now, just like feels secondary. So I'm feeling like a lot of cognitive dissonance because I like you would watch the shit out of the NBA if or when it comes back. And it would feel strange in a way to, I mean, for one thing, it just feels like to, to feel like it's connected to the season that shut down in March would be really strange given that by the time they start up again, it will have been longer than a traditional off season. Yeah. The amount of time that would have elapsed. So that's going to feel really strange as it is. But I also just think, I guess I just want sports to come back in better and 
safer circumstances when I can actually enjoy them and feel good about enjoying them rather than just like feeling terrified all the time that somebody is going to get sick or that think about like this going on in Florida while say the state like runs out of hospital beds and meanwhile in this bubble next door I mean I don't really know like have they laid out how that's going to work if a player say gets COVID and needs to be hospitalized or has a really serious injury and needs to be hospitalized and the hospitals there are overwhelmed like are they going to have NBA like triage center like yeah I don't know if that like and, and whether it's just whether it's like an NBA player getting preferential treatment and getting a bed that somebody else might have otherwise gotten or whether it's just them yeah like having their own triage center just like on an optical level like while people around them are dying I think any way you slice it, it's it's a little bit hard to stomach. No, I said just like the general thought of them being in this like quote unquote safe zone while potentially immediately outside of that bubble is the worst, literally the worst COVID crisis in the world. Seems so tone deaf, right? Yeah, it does. So again, like I love basketball. I love sports. I want sports back in my life, but it's just not that simple right now. And I think you sort of have to think about the collateral or the potential for collateral damage and what we're risking or what we're sacrificing in order to bring them back. And I also just think recognizing, and like you mentioned that piece I wrote, I was sort of spurred to write it because, because the messaging to me has been so disingenuous in some cases, like Adam Silver coming out and saying, we're coming back because People need sports back. It's like helps bring them together when things are really hard. And like, that's bullshit. And, and even in like in, in the anonymous GM survey, survey that Sam Amick conducted, you know, multiple GMs were like, well, yeah, I mean, we're coming back because of the money. Like yeah. that's, that's why they're coming back. And like, I, from a player perspective, I'm not saying that's a bad reason to want to play, like to get paid. And I also think that they're probably like, Anybody right now, if you were unable to do your jobs or to practice your craft, there would definitely be a strong feeling of wanting to do that again. So I'm not saying it's like totally cynically, but I just think this idea that sports are somehow going to help us heal right now is garbage. Yeah, no, look, Silver's remarks are disingenuous. I think anyone... I don't think you have to be a cynic. I think you just need to be a realist to understand why they're coming back. Okay. Like the, we are living in a material world and the NBA is a material girl. Okay. As, as Madonna once said, it's, it's clear as day. And, and that's all there is to it. Um, now, if, if you did want to end on somewhat of a lighthearted note, that is actually still incredibly relevant to this, because I don't think enough people know this or saw this, but so earlier this week, when Adam Silver mentioned he's going to be uh, about the bubble, he said he's going to be down there at the beginning, but I'm going to come and go. And the scores, I don't know if you said the score on social media on Instagram, put up a graphic with Silver's quote saying that he's going to come and go from the bubble. Terrence Ross commented on our IG post saying me too. <laughs> and buddy healed commented saying I should just get an Airbnb then. So, Again, a little lighthearted note for us to end on while still being very relevant to what's going on. And uh, just a reminder that even just the notion that they can 
keep these players bubbled for as long as they're planning to might be a bigger concern than they're willing to admit. Yeah. Just ask Stephen A. Smith. <laughs> yeah, that was a great, that was actually a great rant. Um, anyway, I, I feel like we can leave it there. Yeah. Um, it seems like for now it's just kind of more of the same. I, I think we're going to keep seeing more challenges, more positive tests as the NBA sort of works to get a handle on this and get everybody to Florida. I mean, we're four weeks out from when they're supposed to start. So this thing is barreling down on us. And I think we'll find out, I guess, soon enough whether they're going to be able to pull it off or not. But for now, that's it for us. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon, Pound the Rock. Pound the Rock.